Well, thank you, uh, those of you who are here, and I uh, appreciate it. We I spend hours on this stuff and uh, do appreciate uh, having some audience to speak to. So uh, we are going to continue today with the Kingdom of God series, and uh, we are finishing Chapter 3 today. So this is Chapter 3, Part L, so the 12th message in Chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 has been about major biblical themes, and today's message is called Beyond Redemption to Restoration. I've got a little subtitle that's really just for fun, actually. Three R's from a plethora of biblical R words. Plethora meaning an abundance of biblical R, R words. So our series theme verse has been, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, again, I can't emphasize enough that I've uh, taken informal surveys over the years of people and, and said, what do you think the kingdom of heaven is or the kingdom of God? And uh, most people have no idea, and uh, they might think it has something to do with the next life, and uh, it has nothing to do with the next life. No, it has a little to do with the next life. Um, so uh, what Jesus is, is asking us to pray for is the restoration of God's purposes. That's what we're going to look at today. God had an eternal decree in his goal in creation— was to bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth and to fill the earth with his temple, that all the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was always his uh, goal in creation. And when man rebelled and fell, God didn't say, oh, no, that caught me off guard. I wasn't planning for that. <laughs> God plans the end from the beginning, and he declares the end from the beginning. And his purposes, like his, his character, is in, are immutable. When, uh, if you want to get a uh, handle on how to study the Bible, one of the first things you should do is read a very good book on the attributes of God, because the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. All of Scripture comes out of God's nature. Uh, Protestants, we tend to have, have it backward a little bit, because we kind of think uh, there's the Scriptures, and we'll impose that on our views of God. But actually, the living word, Jesus Christ, existed before the written word. And, uh, and the written word is, is, to, uh, is, is written by the eternal word. And the eternal word is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So um, one of the attributes of God you will study is you'll study uh, immutability. And so... Uh, immutable means it can't be altered. Uh, you can't take away from God, add to him. You can't change him, can't adjust him. He is. I am that I am. And, uh, and therefore, all of Scripture has to be interpreted out of his immutability. So his purpose could not be changeable. He wasn't surprised when you... Uh, maybe committed some sins this week, and you were like, oh, I've let the Lord down. Well, you know, he has provision to restore your relationship and so forth. But uh, guess what? He wasn't like, oh, no, I wasn't planning for that. My whole, my whole purpose has been wiped out. <laughs> not, not so. So uh, as we've been going through this, chapter one, we looked at the primacy of the kingdom of God. That is that we demonstrated that the kingdom of God is the central theme of all scripture. 
Now, we just did so by what you might call a, a didactic or Socratic approach, where we just highlighted lots of the scriptures that just plain out say the kingdom of God is the central theme of all scripture. However, as we, especially after next week, when we start getting into biblical imagery and biblical word pictures and how to read the Bible for all it's worth, you'll begin to see that actually the kingdom of God is the main theme of all scripture in hundreds and hundreds of different ways. And uh, it's kind of a testimony to the lack of scriptural study of our day and the lack of being able to see scripture comprehensively that we don't know that. Uh, Chapter 2, we defined the kingdom. We spent a couple weeks on that, a couple messages, and we did a retake on that. So uh, there, you can find those on the podcast. But we used 12 statements that provide a comprehensive view of what the kingdom of God means in Scripture. Chapter 3 so far, we're looking at ma- major biblical themes. And A through J, we've looked at inerrancy of Scripture. We've looked at eternal decree. We've looked at eight aspects of all biblical covenants. If you go online and look at aspects of biblical covenants, you'll find the, you know, some that say five and so three and whatever, but there really are eight, and we gave them all to you. Um, chapter uh, 3K last week, we talked about plumbing the depths of man's fall, and that's kind of a necessary prerequisite to understanding what we're talking about today. But uh, probably one of the many uh, errors of our day, one of the many things that's causing the church to be to lose so much ground and be so impotent, uh, is that we don't have much of a view of the fall of man. And I find it kind of an I- irony that the more biblically based ed, uh, upbringing that people had, the more they don't see themselves as fallen or see much aspect of the fall of man. And so they think, I needed to invite Jesus in my life because I made a few mistakes, but I'm basically a pretty good person, and, you know, he's, God's pretty lucky to have me. I've always been on his side. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the message last week, I don't want to really review it. There's no time for it. We, we're already more than 10 minutes behind. But um, the truth is, if you underestimate your own fallen nature, you'll underestimate the work of the Savior. And you can't really know Jesus until you see more fully your need for Jesus. And uh, Jesus didn't come to just give you a little counseling or uh, reform you a little bit. He came to rebuild you, recreate you, restore you. He he came to make all things new. Now notice there. Uh, he redeems what's in you. You're, you still are created in the image of God. And you're, you still, therefore, have an, uh, value and purpose and so forth. And the image of God is not totally obliterated in man, even though every aspect of the image of God in us is twisted and perverted and off course and, and has wrong motives. But he restores you in such a way that you become that which you were, you were always intended to be. So it's very important to see, like in 2 Corinthians 5 and other places, he makes all things new. He doesn't make all new things. That's a really important distinction. And so God is in the recreating you business. And we're going to look at that today uh, as we get into this. Now, um, I want to start by just talking about biblical R words in general, 
and use the, the prevalence of them as a way to help us diagnose the meaning of the whole Bible. Or if, if you study theology, you would call that hermeneutics. How to, what's the science of how to interpret the Bible? And I think our words are a key to understanding the whole Bible. In uh, education, if you go to a traditional school or a school that's trying to say, gee, we've taken some wrong turns in our education, that's why Johnny Can't Read was a major uh, important book of the 1950s. And in the 1980s, the sequel, Why Johnny Still Can't Read, was also very important. Could, if you could turn that off, I would appreciate it. Um, so, um, I've got to get on my train of thought here again. Sorry. Um, so, the, uh, in education, the, you know, People who are traditional about it say, well, we need to get back to the three R's of education, which is a little bit of a joke because only one of them is really an R word, but they'll say reading, uh, writing. That in some, uh, If you notice, I have the, uh, I forget what the symbol is called, but uh, what's that symbol called? It's before an apostrophe. So, whatever, writing and arithmetic. And, uh, of course, uh, if you really want to get... Uh, is the colloquial slang you might say reading rotten and arithmetic and uh of course uh, only reading really begins with an r but the others begin with r sounds if you uh, don't pronounce the a very much in arithmetic uh and that's a philosophy of education that the building blocks of of knowledge are reading writing and arithmetic and uh we would do well to think give some thought to that now some biblical r words that i want to bring to your attention that are reconciliation Repent, repentance, restitution, raise, raised, resurrection, ransom, redeem, redemption, return, revive, ransom. Oh, I put ransom twice. Uh, return, rebirth, reborn, regeneration, restore, restoration, refreshing, and reprobate. Uh, some of us know that last word, but uh, <laughs> more more than the others. But uh, now I want you to note that if you were to think about those words. Most of those are major biblical theme words. I actually considered when I was uh, thinking about how to break up the idea of the major bi biblical themes of Scripture, of doing one unit just on biblical R words. And if you notice, most of those R words start with the prefix R-E, re. And that's a clue to un understanding the whole Bible, especially in light of last week's message. When you consider God's immutable purpose, if you put the some of the major themes of Scripture together, the first one, uh, after we looked at the inerrancy of Scripture, we looked at the second time, week, we looked at eternal decree. So if you look at God's immutable, unchangeable purposes, in light of the depths of man's fall, there's going to be a whole lot of re going on. There's a major theme of the whole Bible is reconciliation. Redemption, regeneration, recreation, restoration. Uh, there's the whole work of the Bible is re. Re everything. And uh, that will all lead up to the return of Christ. So the psalmists say, revive us again and created me a clean heart, which is to say, recreate me, and so forth. So um, 
I want you to notice that there's umpteen R words in the Bible. Umpteen is actually a word. I looked it up. Uh, uh, it was invented around 1915 and 1920 range. And it means uh, a plethora of things, an abundance of things, many things. There are many, many R words in the Bible. Lots of them begin with re because the whole Bible is about re. And God's eternal plan was always about re. He planned to suffer long with fallen creatures so that he might redeem and restore them so they might from all eternity know, uh, not any longer experientially, but know in their remembrance, that is a word I should have put in, remember. The Bible has a lot to say about remember. Remember, remember memorial stones when they crossed the Jordan and remember to teach your children this and all the celebrations of Israel were to be remembered and we do this in remembrance of him. And Peter says three times in Second Peter, I write these things so that you might remember so, re, re, re. And uh, there's a whole lot of re going on. Um, so, I see my uh, computer, the re Microsoft Word has this way of jumping and reformatting everything the way it wants to, and you have to spend hours fighting that when you're creating documents. So, I see on point 4A there that it slid it over a little bit, and uh, I didn't catch that in the hurry to proofread it fast. But let's look at the words ransom, redeem, and redemption. We're going to kind of look at uh, three R words here. And the second one is uh, actually not an R word, like arithmetic is not an R word. But the first one is kind of one word, three words that are one, ransom, redeem, or redemption. Okay, now, uh, redemption is the act of buying something back or paying a price to return something to your possession. So we, we hear the word ransom. If, you're a, if you, like myself, uh, and my wife are a, a lover of mysteries, mystery TV shows, mystery movies, mystery novels, uh, sometimes they're about murders, usually, because that's my theory on that is that's the one crime that most people can agree is wrong in our antinomian world. Uh, but sometimes they're about kidnappings. And in kidnappings, there's always a ransom to be paid, right? So uh, the, the Bible has a lot to say about God ransoming us. Redemption is an English translation of the Greek word uh, agorazo, uh, meaning to purchase in the marketplace. In ancient times, it's often returned, was referred to as the act of buying a slave. In fact, the real biblical picture of redemption is a slave in the slave market, chained and bound, as we all were bound by our sin. You weren't just a lit, an occasional sinner. Your entire being was bound by sin. Even the good things you did, you did for evil and wrong motives. That's why the Bible makes repentance from dead works a foundation of the Christian faith in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. You Even your very good acts were completely unacceptable to a holy God and completely done for wrong attitudes and wrong motivations at wrong times. Uh, that's why often when a goody-two-shoes type of person comes to Christ, uh, they, they can go two ways. It, sometimes they 
have a hard time seeing the, their need for redemption and their need for the atonement and their need for a new life and, and, and the grace of God and so forth. Other times they'll begin to see, wow, I was a goody two shoes for all the wrong reasons. I was because of the fear of man, because of the boastful pride of life, because of lots of reasons that weren't to love and serve God. Sometimes people will flat out admit, well, I just didn't do all the wicked stuff because I was too chicken, <laughs> but I wanted to in my heart. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the truth is uh, we all have to be ransomed. We were completely chained. A slave in a slave market was completely chained. And either this person bought them or that person bought them. They had no say-so. And uh, if they wanted to sell the, the wife to, and, to, and to someone else, that slave had no say-so. And if they wanted to sell the kids somewhere else, the slave had no say-so. And the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And Christ redeemed them from their slavery. Moses, one of the great four, four uh, shadowings of Christ in the Bible. We're going to read a quote of Moses as requoted by the apostles in Acts 3 later in this sermon. You know, Moses uh, was a type of Christ sent to redeem Israel. And God put ten plagues upon Egypt and Egypt is a type of the world and the Pharaoh is a type of Satan and and their their slavery was a type of the slavery that we all are under before Christ sets us free from our chains. So uh I I wish you know that's why if you uh if we have a few books on African American theology, and I would really encourage you to to read them, and and uh, especially on the whole concept of being a reform pastor in an African American culture, uh, because African American you know uh, theology uh, is not always uh, super biblical and and uh, uh, needs some redemption, and uh, so the, we have some really good. African-American pastors who've written books on how to be reformed and be African-American. And um, one of the things that you'll, if you study the history of African-American theology, you'll understand that in, in uh, colonial times, even before colonial times, all the way up to after the Civil War, one of the reasons the gospel was very popular among uh, African-Americans and among slaves in the Caribbean and the South and uh, elsewhere was because of the exodus of the Israelites. And although it was illegal in America, in American colonies, to teach African Americans to, to read, many people, you know, some people might know who Stonewall Jackson was. I'm sure Sidney does. Um, it, he, you know, he was a gener Southern general who didn't agree with slavery and spent a great part of his income uh, supporting Sunday schools for, for African American slaves. Uh, so that they could learn the gospel and the Bible. And what really appealed to them was the story of the exodus of Israel, that Christ redeems us from slavery. And they got it more than a lot of people get it. And so, uh, you know, it's really impossible to begin to understand how to walk with Christ if you don't see that you were a slave. 
Now, a second Greek word is the word lutro, is the, is the, lutron is the uh, noun form, lutrao is the Greek form, but it means to obtain release by the payment of a ransom. A third Greek word, and the one I really want you to, uh, to notice, exagarazo, which is the same root word as the first one, agarazo. Uh, redemption always involves going from something to something. In this case, it's Christ freeing us from the bondage of sin to the freedom of a new life in him and from not being a people to being the people of God. Now, that's so important. One of the things I've never seen is I've never seen anyone teach on Ephesians chapter 2 and not stop at verse 10. Everyone teaches on Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10, that can, can be interpreted, although it's being interpreted out of context to do so, but it can be interpreted is about individual redemption. Sorry, this subject stirs me up quite a bit. It's not about individual redemption. That's why in verse 11 through 22, he says that, that uh, Bobby, give me a Bible, let's turn there. Uh, we all know Ephesians 1, 2, 1 through 10, you probably know it by heart. In, in you were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you formerly walked according to the course of this world, the, according to the prince of the power of the air and, and uh, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And then uh, uh, he, you know, he made us alive and he ransomed us and he uh, uh, seated us in, in heavenly uh, places in Christ Jesus. We, we, we all know that, right? We've all heard tons of sermons on that. But who's heard a sermon on Ephesians 2, 11 through 22? But let me help you understand something when you're reading the Bible. Not only were the chapters put there in the 8th century, but the paragraph breaks are kind of an accommodation to our English rules of structure, sentence structure, and uh, uh, um, what's the word? I'm, grammar, and uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? Um, syntax, and so forth. You, in, when Paul wrote his letters, there weren't spaces between the words. You, you knew where the word uh, ended or stopped, like you do in, say, Spanish, by the ending of the word. They didn't have, they didn't have enough paper to, put, to have, like, enough margins. Like, someday they're going to probably publish the Beth Chamberlain Bible, which will have, uh, like, this much on the beginning of the page, and they don't have margins like this big around it. <laughs> so you can uh, spend your whole life writing little notes, in the, and then you won't have to start adding post-it notes because you've run out of margin states. Uh, you know, they didn't have margins. There weren't breaks between the paragraphs, and there weren't uh, punctuation marks. So when you read Ephesians 1, uh, as you're reading it, compare a few translations and change where you put the periods. Because the periods are added by the translators the best they can to try to follow English word rules of grammar and sentence structure. Okay, so is, if you, what I'm trying to get at is Ephesians 2, 1 through 22 is one continuous thought. Paul's not saying, okay, now that I've covered this subject... Uh, I'm going to jump over to a completely unrelated subject. He's not doing that. 
So I hope you've skimmed Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 by now. You know, uh, everyone knows verse 1, 2, and 3 by heart, but most people probably know verse 5 by heart, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not a, not of yourself, not not as a result of works, uh, lest anyone should boast. For we are his, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and so forth. And in our American radicalized individualistic Christianity, we interpret that as having to do with me. But he's writing this letter to a community of Christians living in a family lifestyle, uh, living under elders, living under the Spirit of God, under the Scriptures, under the government that God has raised up and the apostles have appointed in the church, and living a whole family way of life together. And those verses are about we. And then in verse 11, in case you missed it, therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The point is that through all these things that he's talking about, you've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. You're now Israel. God has always intended to have a people for his possession. In Exodus 9, 5 and, 19, 5 and 6, when he says, uh, if you will indeed obey my voice, then you shall be my special treasure, my covenant people in the earth. He, that is repeated word for word by 1 Peter to the church in 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. So he's saying you weren't a people. When you were in bondage to sin, one of the, it wasn't just that you had lust. It wasn't just that you were hostile and at enmity with people. It wasn't just that you couldn't get your marriage together. It wasn't just that you couldn't get along with people. It wasn't just that you were proud and braggadocious and self-centered and obnoxious. It was, it was that you didn't belong to anyone. You belong to some natural family that was, if they are reprobate or in rebellion to God, you were of your father, the devil. You were excluded from the covenant people of God. Your life was not worth even living. And when you were brought forth into Christ, you were made part of the covenant people of God, that he has purposed from all eternity to have that as his people. And, and so this, this modern aberration of, of, the, of so the so-called saved non-churched movement is basically sticking its middle finger up in the air against God. Be it to be a little bit bold and graphic, it's basically man shaking his fist and saying, uh, we will not have this man rule over us. They were made part of the covenant people of God. They were strangers before. Remember that. You were a stranger. Some of us were stranger than others, but you didn't belong to the covenant people of God. You were aliens from the covenants of providence. There, you had no hope, no purpose. You were without God in the world. There, that's a deadly death. You were, you were in worse shape than Lazarus. You know, when Jesus, when they, he said, take the cover off the tomb, people objected in their natural mindedness, like we should object to the Lord. Lord, let me straighten you out a little bit here. By now, it's going to stink. And uh, Jesus is like, I know everyone I call forth from the dead stinks. Be 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, far out, and left out, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He didn't die to forgive your sins alone. That's a little part of what he died to do, but he died to buy you and ransom you and redeem you from slavery so that you might be set free to the glorious liberty of the sons of God, as Paul calls it in Romans 8. He himself is our reconciliation. He's made both groups into one. And he, to, because he wants to have a people. And through, through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, by which we can cry out, Abba, Father, and we're no longer aliens and strangers. We're fellow citizens with the saints. If you've really been born again, this is what applies to you. I'm not an American. I'm a Christian. And I've been, I'm fellow citizens with the saints, and I'm a member of God's household, Bible speak, Bible culture. That is God's extended family, which is an economic unit, which the, there's a head of the household, the father. He, uh, there's an eldest son, the heir of all creation. And all the people of the family pull together for one way of life and one economy and one purpose. And anything less than that is not Christian. And it's not what they lived in the first five centuries. Read the book when the church was a family. You are fellow citizens of the saints. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles themselves and the prophets, which is the whole of Scripture. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole, in Christ Jesus, that's the whom, the whole body is being fitted together. Now, we all know that sometimes when the stones start banging together, they don't fit quite right at first, and that's why iron sharpens iron, and there's some clashing of stones, but God wants you to fit in to the covenant people of God, and the problem is not with him, and frankly, it's probably not as much with your fellow stones as you think. It's that you've got to become the right stone to fit in, so God remake me so I can be fitted into a holy temple a place for God to dwell in the spirit because from the garden of Eden on, he is always intended to bring the fullness of his glory into the earth and export it. That's the whole meaning of the four rivers to the four corners of the earth, as John pointed out, I think last week or one of the ones I listened to recently on CD again, uh, to the four corners of the earth and, uh, so, that, so that his temple would fill the, the earth and his temple is the people of God. And there will be New Testament churches in every village, every town, every tribe, every tongue, every corner, every people. And there won't be nations like Japan that only have 1% Christians. The reason it's worth sowing is because we know from India and we know from China, we know that sometimes it's worth sowing for centuries and centuries and centuries prayerfully being faithful because God will break through and God will not allow his name to be dragged through the mud that he had to come to do a rescue bailout operation for the church which is the popular notion today he's coming to receive a kingdom prepared for himself and the earth will be filled with his glory before he comes back that's why Psalm 110 the most often quoted psalm in the whole Bible quoted uh, in 
12 or more times in the New Testament, says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, let's move on. So let me, let me just say, because is, 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 what I'm going to try to get to, and I'm probably going to have to run over a little bit. We got started 10 minutes late, and I'm going to make an appeal at the uh, second service to get more people here and get them here on time because it is not good for John and Jason that we run over. But we, this, this, is, this is a hugely important message. We have to get this. We really have to get this. The, every, every Bible, uh, study Bible I've ever read in its introductory articles, every survey of the Old and New Testament I've ever read, every article summarizing the major themes of the Bible has always said that redemption is the major theme of the Bible. But it's not. It's a subset of the major theme of the Bible, which is the restoration of God's eternal kingdom purposes that he always intended. And you have to be reconciled. You must be born again, as John taught a couple weeks back, in order to begin to enter that covenant people of God. And before you are, you're strangers and aliens to the covenant, and you're without hope and without a people in the earth. But when you're born again, you're not born into this, some radical individualism. As we point out over and over, the most common phrase in the, in the Bible-believing church today is personal Savior. That phrase is not in the Bible even once. He's not your personal Savior. He's so much more. He's all that. And I, I, I thought of some illustrations. I won't be able to go, but I'm, I'm going to pick on my good friend Ray Nethery, who's with us as one of the illustrations. Now, if, if you were to ask me, who is Ray Nethery? I would say, well, I've known Ray, uh, you know, since 1974 or five. And uh, he's been my pastor since 2003. And uh, since we began this church, he's been a father to us and a friend, and he's partnered with us and helped us, and he teaches our theology class, and he, uh, he's a place that the elders can call and get advice at times, and, and so forth. Now, that would not be wrong, but it be, would be woefully inadequate. I think if you asked his wife, he'd, she'd have an entirely different perspective, and she wouldn't be wrong either. And if you asked his oldest daughter, Tori, she'd have one perspective. And uh, his middle daughter, Kate, or, uh, you know, whatever. They, uh, if you, you know, if you ask the people in Mansfield, well, he's that guy that started this church back in the late 60s. And if you ask some of you, uh, some of our shorter millennial type people who are maybe a hobbit size, you'd say, he reminds me of, the, he's that big guy that reminds me of Gandalf in, in the uh, Lord of the Rings. He's so much bigger than us, and uh, he's got wisdom. He just doesn't smoke a pipe. Uh, <laughs> you know. So, you know, none of those would be totally wrong, but all of them would be inadequate. I hope you understand that. We remember when we went through grace, like everybody defines grace today as unmerited favor. You'll hear that in Catholic and Protestant churches. And it's not wrong, it's just missing the point. It's woefully inadequate. Grace 
un, God's choosing you and, and, and grant, no one can come unless the Father draws him. You didn't choose me, I chose you. All of that is a necessary ingredient of grace. But, you know, I wouldn't enjoy John Gray's famous apple pie if it just had apples. Do we get, I hope we get this, because this is important. Grace is, starts with God choosing you, but it includes his granting you con, conviction of sin, reconciliation, repentance, uh, recreating you into a new being, and empowering you to become the person you were always created to be. It, it involves restoration. Now, uh, there's other examples. Example four is, you know, the whole proof text thing of modern Christianity versus the whole comprehensive biblical thing, thing, uh, you know, is a very important thing. But I want to jump over to restoration and give what little time I have left to, to that point. Now, I thought restoration could be basically taught about by uh, just this one verse, frankly. Uh, it's a theme of the whole Bible. And what here's here's a key to understanding uh, how to read your New Testament. Whenever Paul writes, he writes all the themes of the Old Testament into his letter. When they give a sermon in the book of Acts, this is one of the eight great sermons in the book of Acts. All of them are from the Old Testament telling us what the Old Testament means. And now we see what was always there. It's like I could have had a V8. Like, wow, my eyes have been opened through the veil of Christ and now I see what the Old Testament was always saying. And so the, the whole sermon is the Old Testament, which is, is why we have such screwy ideas in the church today, because nobody reads the whole Bible. So notice that the, notice the dependence on, this is a sermon that happens after Acts 3.1, when they go to the temple at the hour of prayer. That's the whole point, sermon in itself. And, uh, you know, silver and gold have I none, such as I have I give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And it creates a whole ruckus, and the Pharisees and the religious people are always upset as they are whenever God is doing something redemptive or religious. And so they're, you know, they basically preach this sermon. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance after he explains who Christ is to them, as also did your rulers. That's why you killed them. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, notice that phrase, all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. That's the whole thing Israel could never believe is that God was going to punish his own son with all this, all this suffering. They believed that anyone blessed of God would never suffer. That's why they couldn't even get the message when they were sent into exile with fish hooks in their mouth and killed by the hundreds and the thousands. So he says, repent, our words, and return, that your sins may be blotted out. That's the, and we stop there today. Repent and return so you can have your sins forgiven. That's the modern gospel. That's what we have retreats for, to give that message. But he didn't stop there. And there's no period there except in the English. That your sins may be blotted out or wiped away in order that... That's why your sins are blotted out and wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God wants you to be a temple filled with his presence and to have his presence constantly recreate you, restore you, refresh you, and renew you. That's why we worship. 
That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we share testimonies. That's why we exhort one another to love and good deeds and so forth. Times are refreshing for the and notice the word and there. I should have circled that and highlight bold and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That's who the Christ is. They 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 missed who the Christ was. John's Acts two sermon. Whom heaven must retain or receive. He's going to stay in heaven. In other words, he's saying Psalm 110. Heaven must receive until the period for restoring some things. The period for restoring slightly some Christians so that uh, they get free from some of their most grievous sins. Do you know that God wants to restore you from all your fears? All your, all your sins, all the damage that being fallen has brought into your life. All the issues that may have come about from your sin, other people's sins on you, uh, your family of origin issues, whatever God wants to restore all things, and that's just what he wants to do with you as a stepping stone to the fact that he wants to restore the whole creation. That's why St. Francis took Mark 16, 15 literally and preached to the birds and the animals, just warming up here because we're going to declare the glories of the, of the risen reigning Savior to every creature in all creation. And the lion will lay down with the lamb. And children will play by the viper hole and not be bitten. And pollution will somehow be obliterated. And the earth will be refreshed. And these things are, are what the church is supposed to be doing. And there will no longer be oppressive economies and oppressive nation states. And after he restores all things, which he spoke about by his holy prophets, second time he comes to that theme, he says it three times in here so that they get it. Like this is what the whole Old Testament is about. It's about the New Testament. Long ago, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from the, your brethren. That's Jesus, to whom you shall give heed in some things. That's modern American Christianity. Uh, Whatever is not too inconvenient for you. Uh, and it'll be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. Remember that God in the Old Testament was this harsh, mean God. <laughs> this is the New Testament God saying that whoever doesn't heed that prophet will be utterly destroyed from his people. Something that was totally fulfilled in 70 AD when the armies of Rome crushed Jerusalem. Jesus told of it in Matthew 24. Everyone thinks that's about the end times. It's about the Mount Olivet Discourse of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is all about the fact that armies would surround Jerusalem. God has sent one prophet after another, from the blood of Abel, who the Cain killed, all the way to the blood of Zechariah, who was actually killed. It's amazing Jesus said that because this, that Zechariah hadn't been born yet. He's talking about a guy who died in the uprisings. And uh, he's... Uh, Basically saying, you, I called you out of darkness into light. I made a covenant with you. 
I married you, but you like like Hosea brings out over and over again, you've been a most unfaithful bride, but I keep wooing you back. Sound like our Christian life? And uh, every time you are, that you commit adultery with the sins that, you know, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. James says, you adulterers, <laughs> you know, if you preach to, if you preach biblical stuff today, you would like, no one would like you. Uh, I was actually listening to some, some old messages of Billy Graham recently, and I thought, wow, if, if any preacher said what he used to say all the time today, they would stone him to death. <laughs> uh, it, w- it would not be popular. Um, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel on and proclaimed these days. These days are that basically whoever gets on board with this prophet, Jesus, is going to become the new Israel of God. And, I, and I'm done with the old Israel of God. I'm not going to restore it in some dispensational premillennial nonsense. I'm done with it. And I've raised up my servant and I've sent him to you first. See, God always takes a remnant out of the people of God. That's why the restoration of the church will come out of the church. I, I hope that makes sense to you. So I, I, I hope you can kind of see the bigger picture of this, of this, of what I, you know, this, I didn't have adequate time to develop uh, these scriptures. Look at the things, restudy them that I've, uh, you know, highlighted there. But it, God's purpose is much more than radical individualism. Yes, one person at a time has to be grafted into the people of God. But God called you to be a people. The most important decision you'll ever make is, is you always hear like two steps, but it's one step. Receiving Jesus and making him Lord, and therefore he will lead you to people that he wants you to be part of that'll take you further. And the most, Jesus said, you won't see me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will all have our blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord come into our life. And our response to Jesus will be our response to blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sometimes it's your mother. I hated that. Uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, when I was a kid. But, uh, and in you, all this, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, Canaan is a type of the whole earth. The seed of Abraham is Christ. But the seed of Abraham is everyone who truly walks by faith with God who becomes the sons and daughters of Abraham. It's always been about a people, and that people is to be fully restored to the way they were intended to live. So that the world would look at, the the world will never respond to one witness. They'll say that strange guy who lives on campus that talks about Jesus and follows Jesus. But when a community of people live... That way, they'll say, those people live different. They don't have bad marriages. They don't have credit card debt. They, uh, they reconcile with each other. In fact, I'm just going to close. I'm, I'm way behind by, by telling you a quick little story. Um, there was a really wild kid named Eric Meyer who was in my wife's first class she taught. 
He's now a pastor of Tampa Covenant Church, and he was a fraternity guy, drinker, very rebellious and womanizer and all sorts of that kind of stuff. And he was like to give my wife a hard time because he could tell it was her first class and she's teaching this big lecture hall and she's all intimidated and nervous and everything like that. So uh, a guy in our fellowship witnessed to him. That was good. But that guy in our fellowship invited him over to one of our single brother's households for dinner. And during, and it was not even the leadership household. It was actually one of the households that I would have considered at the time a little more problematic. <laughs> but he was there for dinner. And during the dinner, a conflict arose about something that I don't even remember what it was. And he watched how they resolved the conflict among themselves in a mature, redemptive way. You know, people who live on campus together and so forth, they just crash together nowadays. They don't share, have the same groceries or the same goals or prayer meetings together or worship or anything else. It's just everyone doing their own thing. And he was so impressed with the way they reconciled this conflict and how much better they got along than the guys in the fraternity house he was living in who couldn't get along, that he became a Christian. And today he's a pastor of a 700-member church and, and a guy I look up to for advice all the time. So restoration is more than forgiveness. It's more than uh, a sinner's prayer. It's a becoming part of the redemptive purposes of God as a people so that we live our whole life for the glory of God. Amen.